title for today's sermon is A Little Man But a Big God, and is taken from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. This morning I'm going to ask you to think a little bit out of your box, a little bit out of the paradigm that you've been stuck into. The way that you've been interpreting scripture because you've told, you've been told that it is the right way. This morning I need you to look at who the author is, who the speaker is, and who the receivers of the message are. We're so indoctrinated into thinking that Jesus is speaking to the lost and to the saved. He's speaking about the lost and the saved over and over and over again. We need to wash that out of our minds and remember that Jesus is speaking to Jewish people under the law, under the paradigm of going to the temple to be right with God, making their sacrifices. Would you bow with me in prayer as we ask God to guide and direct our thinking. Father, we thank you so much for your love and grace. We thank you for the example that we find in the Old Testament and the people that are there who you called to be the children of Israel. Help us, Lord, to understand this difficult text and to apply the timeless truths to our lives that we might be better equipped to serve you as the church of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Not long ago, I heard a story about an incident that happened at Gold's Gym in L.A. It seems that the owner of the fitness center offered $1,000 to anyone who could demonstrate that they were stronger than he was. Here's how the offer worked. This overly muscled man would squeeze a lemon until all the juice had run out into a glass, and then he would hand the lemon to his challenger. And anyone who could squeeze just one more drop of juice out of the lemon would win the prize. Many people tried to do so. Weightlifters, construction workers, even a professional wrestler. But nobody was able to do it. One day, a short, skinny guy came in and signed up for the contest. After all the laughter had died down and the owner had grabbed a lemon, he squeezed away. Then he handed the wrinkled remains to the little guy. The crowd laughed again, but it turned to silence. When the little man clenched his fist around that lemon and six drops fell out and into the glass. As the crowd cheered, The manager paid out the prize money, and then he asked the little guy what he did for a living. Are you a lumberjack, a weightlifter, or what? The man replied, I work for the IRS. Let me ask you, have you done your 2013 taxes yet? You still have a little over a week to get it done, so it's not time to worry yet. I knew someone who always waited to the last minute, you know, April 14th, if that was the date to start his return. He'd stay up all night, and I'm not talking about myself. You know, it's really hard to be totally honest on your tax returns. For example, here's a letter that was actually written to the IRS just a few years ago. It read, Enclosed, you will find a check for $150. I cheated on my income tax return last year, and I've not been able to sleep ever since. If I still have trouble sleeping, I will send you the rest. (laughs) 
This morning, we will focus not on a woman named Lois Lerner, but a man who cheated not on his own tax returns, but with the taxes of others. He figured out a way to skim money right off the top of the taxes being paid by the common folks to the Roman government. He was able to squeeze the last drop out of the regular folks' wallets. This event should stand in stark contrast to that of the rich young ruler which we looked at just a few weeks ago. You'll recall that Jesus instructed the rich young ruler to sell everything that he owned and give it to the poor and then follow him. And when he refused, Jesus' disciples were amazed. They asked, how could any rich man be saved? And Jesus answered, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Such things are impossible with man, but they are possible with God. Would you turn to Luke chapter 19, where we will pick up with verse 1. You can find this on page 1047 of our Pew Bible if you need to use it. Here in this text, we are introduced to the original cheating IRS guy. Now, you'll recall from last week, we looked at a map which showed us how Jesus had been traveling from the Galilee to the city of Jerusalem. That meant he had to travel across the Jordan River into Perea, down to the place that intersected where Jericho was, cross the river once again, and then pass through that city and enter into Jerusalem. Now, in last week's text, Jesus and his entourage had passed through the old city of Jericho that had been destroyed by God, and then they entered into the new city of Jericho built by Herod. So, the setting of this event is found in verse 1. Jesus is entering Jericho as he was passing through. As you know, Jericho was a rich city, an important city. It was the only route to get to Jerusalem from the direction of the east. So all the people that were coming to trade or to worship at Jerusalem had to pass over the Jordan River and through the city of Jericho before they could enter Jerusalem and, uh, excuse me, enter Judea and then into Jerusalem. Still, Jericho was located in a desert. And what, it made, what made it unique was that Jericho had an oasis which ran with spring water. It was an, a place where because of the adequate water supply, palm trees grew and other trees grew which produced, produced an abundant fruit of dates and other things. And in fact, Jericho was known as the city of palms. Roman traders carried her dates to the rest of the world, including the capital of Rome. Such traders made Jericho the center of riches in Israel and also the center of taxation. It turned Jericho into the Las Vegas, if you will, of their day. Now, many of the powerful and wealthy in Israel, including Jews and Romans, vacationed here in the city. Jericho, in fact, hosted the the summer palace of Herod, as well as many other beautiful villas which were surrounded by plush Gorgeous gardens. And in fact, Herod's digs had its own huge Olympic-sized swimming pool that can still be seen today, at least its outlines can. Jericho, as I said, was the center of taxation because it was 
it was located on the road from the east to Jerusalem, and it collected custom taxes on everyone who passed by. It was therefore the major taxation collection site. Both sales tax and custom taxes were made by the travelers and those that carried goods. Many of the local men in Jericho were hired to man the toll booths on the road. In verse 2, we read of the man who was the commissioner of Israel's internal revenue service. It says, there was a man by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector, and he was rich. Don't you just love that? Nothing's changed. Those who serve us are supposed to be servants rather than enriching themselves off of us. So what do we learn about this man? We learn his name is Zacchaeus. Can you imagine the head of our IRS today in America being named Zacchaeus? Wait till I tell you what his name means. The actual head of the IRS today is Daniel Werfel, but he's being replaced by the Obama appointee, John Kosenken. His net worth is $27 million. So too was the head of the Israeli uh, IRS tax service. He was a wealthy man, Zacchaeus. The lexicon tells us that his name, Zacchaeus' name in Hebrew means pure or the righteous one. I almost burst out in laughter when I read that. An IRS guy named the righteous one. But it's good to remember that it was his parents who gave him this name when he was born. Just think about mom and dad peering down into the crib on that morning in which he was born, saying, isn't he the most precious looking fellow in the world? There's not an evil bone in his body. Let's call him Zacchaeus, the righteous one. And then he grew up. And he became the butt of jokes in his neighborhoods. The bullies at school were calling him names like Scotty Potty and Mofat. Oh, hold on. So, sorry, that was a flashback to my childhood. They'd say stuff like, oh, Mr. Pure, where's your brother, Mr. Clean? You think you're so much better than everybody else because you're the righteous one. Can you see it? The bully's making fun of him. Well, I think this caused Zacchaeus in some ways to develop a rebel streak within him. And and then on one dark night as he was growing up, he decided that he was going to sell out to the Romans. If he was disliked before, he was now going to become hated as he became a tax collector for Rome. But it did make him a rich man. A Jewish tax collector, you see, would buy the privilege from the Roman authority to collect the taxes in a certain region. This was a fixed amount. And, of course, the tax collector would tack on top of that, of the normal taxes collected, his own duty, if you will. Normally, he would collect a lot more, maybe up to 10% more than Rome required. And that excess would be for himself and those who he hired. Zacchaeus or the righteous one, what a misnomer, was called the chief tax collector in this text. That implies that he was the head of the tax collection over all of Israel, and he would employ many men, so he even became richer. These men, the tax collectors working for him, would go to the homes and businesses and farms in Israel to collect the Roman tax. And if they didn't pay up, Their houses would be taken, their farms would be taken, or their businesses would be 
would be taken. Sounds like a lot like today, doesn't it? Jericho was therefore the best place for a tax collector to live. He was living amongst the wealthy. He was living where the center of commerce was. And yet, despite all of his worldly wealth and his worldly success, there was a deep dissatisfaction within the inner man of Zacchaeus. How do I know that? First of all, I know it because there's an inner dissatisfaction in the breast of every human being who's ever lived. There's a vacuum-sized place that's missing that only God can fill. But we also see it in his actions found in verse 3. We read that Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd. For he was small in stature. Here's the chief tax collector in Israel trying to see over the heads of those in the crowd in order to get a glimpse of Jesus. What does that say about Zacchaeus? Well, first of all, it tells us he really wanted to see Jesus, but we don't know why. Why did he want to see Jesus? Well, we're not told. Was it because Zacchaeus wondered what Jesus looked like? You know, we all wonder what people look like, especially famous people. Sue bugged me last night to look at her little tablet of uh, famous people without makeup on. (laughs) Apparently that fascinated her. I didn't find it so fascinating. But you know, when you meet famous people, they kind of all look common, don't they? They don't look any different than anybody else. So maybe Zacchaeus wanted to see what this famous Galilean, a miracle worker, looked like. I'm sure he was probably disappointed because the Old Testament tells us that Jesus was not very comely or not much to look at, if you will. But Zacchaeus, being a short man, wanted to see maybe how tall Jesus was. Maybe he wanted to stand next to him and compare. Or maybe he was just curious about all the things that he heard about Jesus. He wanted to get a good vantage point where he maybe could see Jesus do one of the miracles that he does. Whatever it was, Zacchaeus had a problem. He couldn't see over the heads of the people. And no one would move out of his way because they didn't like him. He had a notorious reputation. But he was a clever man. He wasn't made the chief administrator over all of Romans' tax collections for nothing. He knew how to get things done. So not being able to see over this massive humanity was no problem for for Zacchaeus. He just ran in the direction that Jesus was walking. He saw a tree and he climbed it. Now, if you know anything about customs in these days, it was very undignified for a man to run. (laughs) That's why I don't like to run. But it didn't stop Zacchaeus. In verse 4, it says, Zacchaeus ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see Jesus, for he was about to pass through the way. So Zacchaeus picks up his robe, tucks it into his belt, and makes a beeline for the tree that he can see down the way. He's eyeing Jesus the whole way. Now let me ask you this. What would you think of a grown man running to a tree and climbing it? You'd probably think it was a little nutty like he was suffering through his second childhood. This made me think back in the text of Luke to what Jesus said. Do you remember when he said in the last chapter, verse 17, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter into it. Maybe this is a commentary on that. I don't know, but it's an intriguing thought. 
Certainly, curiosity was one of Zacchaeus' character traits. And since he couldn't see Jesus because of his shortness, he overcame it through resourcefulness. He set aside all his dignity and he climbed the sycamore tree just like a kid. Now, the sycamore tree that we find in America is not like the sycamores in Israel. The tree there that's called a sycamore is more like a mulberry tree. It's easy to climb because it has very long arms that are low to the ground. This kind of tree was often planted along the roadside to give shade. So we find Zacchaeus now ensconced on a branch up in the tree just in the right place where he can get a good view of Jesus as he passed by. In his head he's wondering, who is this man, Jesus of Nazareth? Look at him, am I missing something? As he waited, Jesus, it says in verse 5, excuse me, came to the place. He looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your home today. How did Jesus know his name? We don't know because it's not stated. But we do know the Lord's request of Zacchaeus. Jesus asked him if he will come down so he can stay overnight at his home. Now, some try to make more out of this request than I believe they should. They try to say that there's a divine must here, that Jesus is using supernatural knowledge that he has gained somehow about this wee little man. And that the must is, there's a divine plan behind this. There's a divine appointment in which he's going to save Zacchaeus. I'm not sure that's what's happening. I kind of think Jesus has traveled a long distance and he needs a place to stay. And remember, he has a large entourage to put up for the night as well. Surely they needed food and rest. So he asks the rich man if he will host him and his entourage as they are in town. Everyone was hungry, and this man was a rich man, and they needed to get those basic human needs met in a hurry. So when Jesus stopped at the custom station, as every traveler had to do, just like you do, if you go into Canada, you've got to stop at the custom station. And it was probably there that Jesus heard about the tax collector. Maybe they had his picture of Zacchaeus with his name underneath it. Biggest bum in town, but the richest. Anyway, I suspect that Jesus probably heard about about Zacchaeus and that he was a small man. And so as he's walking down the street and he looks up and he sees this man in the tree in rich garb, he puts two and two together. Or maybe our Heavenly Father just revealed it to him. I don't know, and the text doesn't tell us, and I don't think it really matters either way. What I do know is that Jesus was on a mission to reach the unreachable with his message. That's why he chose to spend time with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors like Zacchaeus. They were on the fringe of the nation of Israel. As I thought about this, I thought we should be doing the same, shouldn't we? We should be reaching out to those on the fringes in our community I think we waste a lot of time inviting people to church when what we should be doing is going to their homes to be with them, to spend time with them. We should go to the places where they work and where they live. Isn't that what Jesus did? 
Here's the Lord of glory coming down from heaven, and he goes to the home of a tax collector and dines with him and spends the evening with him. If you really want to reach people for Jesus Christ, then go where they are. Spend some time with them. Don't waste time inviting people to church who won't come. So Jesus literally invites himself into the home of Zacchaeus and his whole entourage. And Zacchaeus is more than happy, as we read in verse 6, to have them. And he hurried, and he came down, and he received him, that is Jesus, gladly. Why was this man happy? Why was Zacchaeus so glad? That's what it says here. I believe Zacchaeus' joy overflowed from the fact that a respected rabbi with a great reputation was going to spend the evening in his home and even dine with him, despite his reputation as a tax collector. As you know, table fellowship in Judaism was a sign of mutual acceptance. Think about it. Not many of us invite people over to our homes who we know are degenerates and great sinners, do we? Probably not. But Zacchaeus is overjoyed with the totally unexpected privilege of hosting Jesus in his own home. So he scurries down the tree to greet Jesus. But as you can guess, not everybody is happy about this. We learn in verse 7 that when the crowds that were surrounding Jesus saw and heard this conversation, they began to grumble, saying, Jesus has gone to be the guest of a man who is a terrible, a great sinner. I think this is one of the uses of all uh, hyperbolically. I'm not sure all the people were grumbling, but most were. I can't imagine Jesus' disciples were grumbling. All they wanted to do was get their rumbling stomachs filled with food. But the important people in Jericho were complaining. Why would this rabbi validate this terrible sinner into believing that he's a righteous one? You get the pun. Interestingly, the word that's translated here as grumble in the text is the same word that's used in the Greek Septuagint of the Old Testament and is translated as murmur. It comes from a Hebrew root word which sounds like the buzzing of bees, murmur, grumbling. Some folks are so upset with Jesus that they're murmuring because he's going to eat with a sinner. Outrageous, contemptible. Can you imagine it? But Jesus is no respecter of people. In fact, just a couple of days before, you'll recall he was eating with a Pharisee. And it was there at the Pharisees' table that he accused the religious elite of frustrating the will of God for the children of Israel. Now here he is eating with a man who is considered a political and economic traitor to the land of God. They thought when Jesus ate with with Zacchaeus, it made him unclean. That's what they thought. He's going to eat with this sinner. It's going to make him ceremonial unclean. But Jesus makes a complete break with all the oral traditions laid down by the rabbis in the previous century. He wasn't concerned about ceremonial cleanliness or uncleanliness. 
But this did make him theologically suspect in the eyes of the Pharisees and the other religious leaders in the crowd. So Jesus goes home with Zacchaeus. He dines with him along with his disciples and many other in his entourage. All are having a wonderful time eating as we saw in the film at the beginning of our service. They're eating those Jericho dates and they're resting their weary feet when Jesus begins a long discussion with Zacchaeus, I assume, about his life and the choices that he was making. Now, nothing in the text tells us uh, what Zacchaeus and Jesus were talking about, but I, say, I, I would imagine that the conversation had a great deal to do with what Zacchaeus does at the end of the, di- at the dinner. Because we read in the text that he stands to his feet and Zacchaeus makes an announcement found in verse 8. He stood and he said, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give them four times as much back. Now, you can imagine the reaction. Well, in the film, they laughed uh, to this announcement. The people in the room, I'm sure, were stunned when Zacchaeus stands to his feet and clears his tiny wee little voice and says, please listen up. I'm going to give half of all that I own, all of my goods to help the poor in the city of Jericho. And I will also be repaying anyone four times of that which I have defrauded them of. The mouths of the people must have fell open. Is Zacchaeus ill? Is there something wrong with him? He's the epitome of greed. And here he is pledging to give away his wealth. He must be sick. Now, one conversation with Jesus could, might have, had this effect on Zacchaeus. That's for sure. Some look at the text and they point to the English translation of a Greek word as if to argue that Zacchaeus was somehow hedging his bets here. I'll only do this if someone can prove to me that I actually cheated them out of their money. Then I'll give them four times as much back. But I don't believe that the Greek grammar allows that. The word that's translated here as if could just as well, because it's found in a first-class conditional clause, could be translated as since. It would then not be a hypothetical case, but it would be the reality, and it would be better translated this way. Since I have defrauded others, I will give back to them four times as much as I have taken. Zacchaeus was well aware that he was a fraud, that he defrauded others out of what was rightly there. He, ex- he had extorted large amounts of money from innocent Jewish farmers, homeowners, and shopkeepers. It was now time for him to make things right. Was this because of Jesus? Had Zacchaeus undergone a grand conversion? Was he lost and now is he saved? That's the way most pastors and preachers want to typify this passage. They always look at the Gospels in a lost and saved context. But that's not the historical paradigm that we find in the the Gospel period. They are people who are under the law. There is no church. It hasn't even been thought of as of yet. There's no one who is saved looking back 
to the cross. They are believers in the promise of the Messiah. This death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus had not historically occurred as of yet. Those who followed him were believers that he was fulfilling the Old Testament promises of a Messiah who would come and save the people from foreign domination. The Holy Spirit had not descended and indwelled believers as of yet. So the church had not come into existence. So then, Zacchaeus, being a Jew, promises to do what is right according to the law. He voluntarily fulfills the law of Moses by making the required restitution according to that law. Now, is Zacchaeus overwhelmed with guilt? Probably. And that's why Zacchaeus goes beyond the prescription of the law and does over and above it. Let me show you the demands of the law in the Old Testament. There are three texts which I'd like to focus upon to show you how the Old Testament delineates the responsibility of an Israelite when he has defrauded his neighbor. The first text I'd like to look at is Leviticus chapter 6 and verse 5. You don't need to turn there. You can just listen or you can't turn there if you'd like. In Leviticus chapter 6 and verse 5, it says, When an Israelite is guilty of anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall make restitution for it it in full and add one-fifth more. He shall give it to the one whom it belongs on the day he presents his guilt offering. Then over in Numbers chapter 5 and verse 7, it states that he shall confess his sins which he has committed... And he shall make restitution in full for his wrong and add one-fifth to it and give it to him who he has wronged. If that's not clear enough, it also states in Exodus chapter 22 in verse 1, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it and sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. Well, there it is. According to the law, Zacchaeus was required to repay more than the original amount that he had defrauded, one-fifth more. But he goes way beyond that. He does this and more. Verse 8 tells us that he will give half of all that he owes to the poor to make restitution for his sinful pursuits of riches. By the way, isn't that exactly what Jesus told the rich young ruler to do? Sell that all that you have and give it to the poor? And yet he left grieving because it was too hard for him. Here's Zacchaeus, the sinner, the great sinner. He's giving all that he has to make restitution for his sin. Now, cheating was the pastime for Zacchaeus. Giving to the poor was a brand new experience. So why does he decide to do this? Was it the New Testament teaching that he had read? No, the New Testament hadn't even been written yet. Was it Jesus' speaking with him? Well, that could be, but it's more likely that the law was awakened within him. The truth of what he had been taught as a child led him to make this decision along with Jesus' counsel. I believe the will of God for him as a Jew was detailed in the law of Moses. Zacchaeus knew the law, that he was under the law, 
and therefore he obeyed the law. The law demanded this action if he was to be right with God. But because of grace, he goes beyond the law and fulfills even more. He serves an example for us of the kind of repentance that both Jesus and John the Baptist came looking for. Remember what they said over and over again? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. If Israel, if Israel, if Israel had repented nationally in the same way that Zacchaeus did, then Jesus Christ would have been enthroned as king right then and there. They would have known and experienced the blessings of God as promised in the Old Testament to them. So Zacchaeus chooses willfully to receive the judgment of God upon himself and do even more. He exceeds the requirement of the law for repayment of those whom he had wronged. He goes beyond the law of Moses. Isn't it interesting that white-collar crime, like that which Zacchaeus committed, is seen as serious as stealing cattle and sheep. I believe Zacchaeus did this because he wanted to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, in these days, when one became a disciple of a teacher, one of the requirements was this radical giving away of all that you owned in order to follow the teacher in devotion. Now, in verse 9, we hear Jesus' pronouncement based upon Zacchaeus' action. Jesus said to him, that is Zacchaeus, Today, salvation has come to your house, because he too is a son of Abraham. Now, in the paradigm that we are forced to think in by most preachers and teachers today, this is New Testament salvation, that Zacchaeus is saved, that he's going to live glorious with Jesus and enter into eternal life. I don't believe that's what's happening here based on the text itself. The word that is used here is an important one. The word says, don't ring a phone in church. Oh, no, that's not the word. I'm sorry. The word that's used here for salvation is sozo, and it can be used in a number of ways. As I detailed last week, normally in the Old Testament, it was designated as physical deliverance. I don't believe Jesus is saying that Zacharias and his household have been spiritually delivered from hell and damnation by trusting him. So what is Jesus saying here? Notice it says, today salvation has come to this house. This act of Zacchaeus affects him and his whole household. So let me ask you, can you save your children by your decision? Can a man save his whole household, his children, and his servants? The salvation being spoken of here is not spiritual salvation, but physical deliverance. You see, by this act of charity, this giving away of half of his possessions to the poor, Zacchaeus doesn't save himself from eternal damnation. What it does do is it demonstrates his change of thinking and becoming right with God according to the paradigm that is laid down in the law. This is made clear to us by that fact that Jesus doesn't say you are in Christ, you are now part of the church. He says you are a son of Abraham. A son of Abraham. That is loaded with meaning. 
You see, Zacchaeus by birth and heritage is a Jew. He has the right by heritage to enter into the kingdom of God, the messianic kingdom of a thousand years, because he is a Jew. However, a son of Abraham, or for the women here, a daughter of Abraham, must be justified by faith as illustrated by Father Abraham. For example, over in Galatians chapter 3, Paul speaks of a son of Abraham saying this, Even so, Abraham believed God. That is, he had faith in him. It was therefore reckoned or counted unto him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Obviously, Zacchaeus' fellow Jews all questioned whether or not he was a legitimate son of Abraham. Sure, he was physically and, and by heritage related to Abraham, but was he a true spiritual son of Abraham. In this case, he renews his relationship with God by having a change of mind about the way that he was living. That's what Jesus called Israel nationally to do, to repent of the way that they were living. We see this in Jesus' pronouncement that he is now, he is now today a son of Abraham or a true Israelite by faith, like that of the faith of his father Abraham. The Apostle Paul is again the one that writes about this in Romans chapter 4 and verse 12 saying this, the father of circumcision is the father not only to those who are of the circumcision, but those, get this now, who follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham while he was uncircumcised. Surely Zacchaeus was by physical birth and descent related to Abraham, but now it was by faith that he was related, rightly related, and a true Israelite We see this fleshed out for us, no pun intended, in chapter 2 of Romans in verse 17 where Paul writes this. It's a long extended period, so listen carefully. Long extended quote. If you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not also teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? What was Zacchaeus doing? Stealing. You who say that you should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you not break the law? Do you not dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. Just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value only if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Zacchaeus goes from not practicing the law to practicing the law. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? 
Yes, is the obvious answer. He who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will not be judged out of the letter of the law and by circumcision are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And that circumcision, says Paul, is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Jesus' mission when he came to earth was to go to the Jew first and to offer himself to be their king. This man is a Jew. He's part of the covenant made with Abraham. And since he was acting like a Gentile, breaking the law, he was considered a traitor by his fellow Jews, seen to be outside of the covenant of Abraham. But Jesus came seeking the lost to change their minds because of their disobedience. He came to offer a way for the disobedient to have a right standing with God once again, not by self-effort, but by faith in himself. He goes to the Jewish family, the lost sheep of Israel, and he offers a way back. Even those who had terrible, sinful backgrounds could be true Israelites. It is again Paul who writes about corporate Israel in chapter 9 and verse 6. It is now, it is is not as though the word of God has failed. It's not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. There it is. Zacchaeus became a son of Abraham, a child of God, not by his actions, but by his faith in Christ as the promised Messiah of Israel. This rubbed up against what most Jews believed. They believed their deliverance was based upon their heritage, their ethnicity, their descent by birth from Abraham. And only those who committed heinous crimes like the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes would be excluded. But God's deliverance now came to those on the fringe like Zacchaeus and his household, ones that they thought completely unworthy. Notice again that it says salvation has come today. This is not to be interpreted as meaning that Jesus gave Zacchaeus Zacchaeus and his household, eternal security in some way. Zacchaeus has experienced the deliverance that every Jew under the law sought as a son of Abraham, not by virtue of heritage, but by repentance and doing the will of God according to the Old Testament. Let me show you this by asking you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 3, and verse 25. Listen carefully to these words written by Luke, the same author as we're reading. It is you, ethnic Israel, Jews. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
For you first, God raised up his servant, that's Jesus, and sent him to bless you. Get this now, here it is, by turning every one of you, who? The Jews, from your wicked ways. That was Jesus' mission. He came to turn Israel back to God. He came offering himself to be king. He wanted them to repent of their sins and get right with Yahweh. How would this be evidenced? By their obeying the law of Moses. But they failed to do so. So what does Zacchaeus do? He clearly understands his wicked ways. He turns and obeys the dictates of the law, even going beyond it. Listen to me now. The Jews were not saved by keeping the law. They showed their dependence, their trust, and their faith in God by obeying it. That's why Paul will tell the Galatians the promises that were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, and he did not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. The covenant of God's blessing was given to Abraham and to his seed, the sons of Abraham, not to Gentiles, and the church. Deliverance came to Zacchaeus, not because of his heritage, but because like his Like his father Abraham, he had faith in the promises of God and was a true son of Abraham, a true Israelite, a child of the old dispensation. Now, don't don't miss this. According to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 16, those who walk by this rule experience peace and mercy upon them and upon the God of Israel. God wanted all Jews, every Israelite, to experience peace and mercy, but they had to follow the rule of faith. Those who will walk by this rule, that is faith like their father Abraham, will experience peace and mercy upon them and upon the God of Israel. Zacchaeus and his household had never experienced that peace and mercy before. But now they do. Recall the experience of the Jews in the wilderness. God called them out of the promised land and he promised them an abundant life. He promised them the land of promise filled with grapes as big as basketballs. Remember? But they missed it. They completely missed it. Two million died in the desert. Only two of them actually got into the promised land. Only two. You could do it this way. Only two. 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 You understand how we little that is? Only two got into the promised land. Because of disobedience. Zacchaeus wants to enjoy the peace of God in this life and the mercy of God. He wants to experience it here and now, but because of his disobedience, he had been missing it. Now he's come to right relationship with God. And he will experience it. Notice, as Jesus explains this in the last verse that we're going to look at this morning, verse 10, where Jesus said he came to Israel. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Again, we tend to force this into the paradigm of the New Testament, lost and saved. That's not what Jesus is speaking of. 
Jesus uses his favorite messianic title for himself here, not Savior. He calls himself the Son of Man. This title comes from the prophetic book of Daniel in which it details the future of Israel. It's all laid out for us there. And notice, Jesus is not speaking to or about the church here, for the church is yet a mystery. Jesus says that he came to seek and to save, not the church or the lost of the church age, but that which was lost, that which was lost. Listen to the words, that which was lost. Isn't that interesting? He didn't come to seek the lost, but that which was lost. And who is the which that was lost? These are the words of a shepherd who has lost something. The compassion and the concerned herdsman who is seeking that which he has been which has been misplaced. Back in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 6 through 11, God speaking says this. My flock wandered through all the mountains on every high hill. Who was God's flock? Israel. My flock wandered through all the mountains on every high hill. My flock was scattered all over the surface of the earth. There was no one to search or seek for them. Sound familiar? Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God. Behold, I am against the shepherds. Who are the shepherds? The religious leaders of Israel. I am against the shepherds and I will demand my sheep from them. I, myself, who is that? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll search for my sheep and seek them out. Jesus Christ came seeking and searching for his lost sheep of Israel. The house of Israel. Not the church. His flock was scattered all over the earth through the dysphoria. The lost sheep are the lost of Israel. Now, lost doesn't mean eternally lost or damnation. It means to be misplaced. On Friday, I got ready to go home, and I couldn't find my keys. I lost my keys. They were misplaced. I, of course, blamed Sue. What did you do with my keys? It's always easy to be the victim, isn't it? Place, place the blame on somebody else. Drop your eye down to verse 15 of that same text, Ezekiel 34, and he says, the Lord says this to the flock. I will lead them to rest. I will seek the lost and bring back the scattered and bind up the broken and straighten the sick, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. Who are the fat and the strong? The religious elites of Israel. And I will feed them with judgment. So then... Jesus encounters a blind man, Bartimaeus, on the fringes of society, unworthy according to the religious elites of Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Then he meets a sinful tax collector named Zacchaeus, one of the outcasts of the nation of Israel. This is the Messiah who came seeking the lost, the misplaced for the purpose of reestablishing them as true Israel because they responded into like faith of their father Abraham. This was Jesus' purpose and mission as stated by Luke right up front in chapter 1 and verses 68 and beyond. Listen to these words as I read them. 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And is, he has up, raised up a horn of salvation for the house of David and his servant, as his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of the prophets of old, salvation, that is physical deliverance, from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant and the oath which he swore to Abraham our father to grant us that we being rescued, physical deliverance, from the hand of our enemies, Rome, and might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days to shine upon those who sit in darkness, Bartimaeus, Zacchaeus, and the shadow of death to guide our way into the way of peace peace and mercy we must be very careful to understand this rightly Jesus did not come seeking those who were lost without salvation the Gentiles he came seeking his own those who had ended up in the wrong place those Jews that would become true Israel many were lost because they were not in their rightful place as sons of Abraham and daughters of Abraham. They'd wandered away from the God of Israel. They had been misled by their shepherds, the elites, the religious ones of Israel. And Jesus came to restore them to their rightful place of obeying and worshiping God the Father along with their whole household. Now how can we apply this to our lives today? Many of us here know the Lord, but we are walking in darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil. We don't trust in Christ for our today when we will trust him for our tomorrows. We are in a wrong place. We need to get to that right place. We are saved spiritually, but we have been lost physically. We need to be delivered by our Savior once again. We need to focus on the foundations of our faith as children and walk with the Lord in harmony and we will experience the peace and mercy that he has to offer us. This is a call for all to return to their rightful place as children of God and to experience his peace and mercy here and now. You'll experience there and then, but you can know it here and now. When we live as though we are lost, we experience physical dangers. When we are disobedient in our lifestyle, when we drink drug and live like rock and rollers, we experience physical dangers. Jesus is calling us back to live according to faith. If we walk by faith, then we should be reaching out to those who are on the fringes like we once were. We should be learning from Jesus' example here. Stop inviting people to church and go with the gospel to them. Go to their homes, their places of interest. Be with them. Go to those that are on the fringes of society and welcome them by faith into the family of God. Don't expect those on the fringes to come to church. They won't, but we need to go to them. We are called to take the gospel into the marketplace. We are called to be his people. Will you do that? Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful for your call in our lives, your work through the Spirit in our lives.
We pray, Father, we might heed the word of God, see the example of Zacchaeus, that we as your children might live and walk by faith in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to not walk away physically, but to dwell in the house of the Lord forever spiritually. Help us, Lord, to do this as your children. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.